Podcast with me, Andy White, and with me today, as most of the time. Sometimes, Mike Theobald. And. And you got Terry Chapman Dharma here. So the whole team are with you. Disclaimer: it's not, it's not sometimes I'm Martin Theobald, it's just you know, sometimes <laughs> I'm here. We don't really want to go down that route, do we? Yeah, yeah. It's a sticky situation. It's a long and winding road. <laughs> we have a full team in to discuss your week of exciting boxing. Let's start with the Sky card, and then we'll move on to York Hall and speak about Ward Kovalev coming up. But start off with the Sky card, um, and Lewis Ortiz fought last night, Terry. So overall, pretty weird situation we're in at the moment, where we have three matchroom cards within four weeks of each other, and I guess... I guess three shows in four weeks is showing how stretched the matchroom card actually is. Well, in terms of the stable, it's pretty stretched because what we saw yesterday was a pretty thin card. The 26th is a good card in terms of your your young up-and-coming guys, but it's not amazing in terms of main main event level fighters. And then we've got December the 10th where we're still not sure outside of the top two events, will we see, you know, will we see a certain Chris Eubank Jr. there as well? So it's a bit of a strange one. Headline act was, this is subject to debate, but I think the headline act was definitely Stephen Smith versus Jason Sosa. And I think that's that's from a viewer's perspective, not from a matching perspective, right? Yeah, I think I think the, the narrative <laughs> they wanted was to showcase Luis Ortiz with his fight being buttressed either side by a McDonald fight and a Stephen Smith fight. But in terms of fighting for a legitimate title, it was definitely the, the Smith fight. Um... Good fight overall. I think they underestimated Jason Sosa. Sosa, if you talk to American people involved in boxing, really high up on him because he came up the hard way. And you can see that in the way that he boxes. So he's a guy, you know, not a decorated amateur, a guy who's learned his craft in the gym, you know, sparring pretty tough people. So when you're from that New Jersey area, you're spending time in Philadelphia, spending time in New York. So you're getting pretty hard sparring. And I'm trying to remember who he fought prior to this now he's definitely fought Nicholas Walters to a draw and then he might have fought um the guy that fought yesterday as well Fortan forget it Javier Fortuna Fortuna that was it (laughs) oh god um so Sosa had been in hard like this run up to his fight has been pretty pretty tough and Steven Smith was just fat. I thought he was just rough. He, he lacked sharpness. He, he he needed to have been in a couple of tough fights before. He's a Joe Gallagher fighter. He's an Eddie Home fighter. He doesn't do tough fights beforehand. Yes. Um, and I'm sure there's a question about Joe Gallagher further further <laughs> further in the podcast. So I won't dwell too much on that now. But what you saw was a guy who wasn't ready for what Jason Sosa brought. And what ended up happening was Jason Sosa gave the guy a beating. And even if the judges are being generous to Steven Smith, you couldn't give him the win. Um... I like what Sosa does, comes in close, is always clever about the punches he finishes on. So, you know, he knows when to finish on the left hook, he knows when to finish on the right hand, which means he he won most of the exchanges in the fight. 
Um, pretty clever footwork, knew how to shut the distance on Smith, who didn't have an effective jab, which seems to be a problem in British boxing at the moment, just the lack of an effective jab. But entertaining enough fight, like the last four rounds of that are worth watching, you know, if you can grab it on YouTube or any other means, you know, on Sky Sports as well. Um, the last four rounds are quite worth watching. They're entertaining enough. And that fight, if you st- if you'd stuck on the Dece- on the December tenth card, that would be you know, that'd be a pretty solid card. Um, um, can, I, can I just ask? Yeah. Given the frequency of matchroom fights over the next uh, over the month, you said it's three and four. Do you think that? Do you think that confirms? Remember, we spoke a few podcasts ago about the lack of perhaps uh, capital that matchroom have in order to make these big fights. Do you think that? Uh, do, do you think this shows that you were right about that? Does it does it challenge that thought, or do you think it makes no difference? Because it seems to me that if you're putting on three and four, then it, you'd got to have at least a decent amount, you know, of turnover to be able to make the or not free cash to be able to arrange these three events. So Matchroom was still on reserves of around ten to thirteen million, depending on who you believe. So that that's just cash they have floating around, and that means you can essentially you can hire venues. You know, you can you can arrange you can arrange all of these fights, but these are relatively low cost cards. I imagine unless there was a wealthy backer for the Monaco card, it was probably a bit of a lost leader for them. You know, it's it was meant to set up some interesting fights further down the line. I thought it was interesting that you know Jason Sosa brought Tevin Farmer with him. Um, Tevin Farmer also a hundred thirty pound fighter who has been linked with Stephen Smith in the past. I'm sure you know he he definitely had to get that British payday. So. I mean, there were things that were meant to be set up and match them have the cash to make that happen. Um, but really, you know, they're spending most of the money on December 10th. So securing the MBN arena in what was probably a hostile takeover would have cost them a pretty penny. Securing <laughs> securing the purses for AJ and Molina because you have to hold those purses in escrow. The Americans are very fussy about that. So the money has to be held somewhere else. So you already, you know, that's cash you can't play with till after the fight. I mean, I don't know what the payment terms are on the arenas. They might have ninety days to pay, so it's it, it's expensive running a boxing promotion, and it's high. It's very high risk. So, kudos to Matchroom for having the finances to do this. I don't know if other promoters could have done it to the even to the level of you know the quality that we have now, and it wasn't great quality. But you know, if you ask other promoters to do this, I think they'd struggle. Okay, so let's dive into the <clears throat> fights that were involved in it, or some, somewhat more, and the what was to be the matchroom, as we assume, their highlighted fight, which was uh, Luis Ortiz versus Malik Scott. Uh, <laughs> give us a rundown. We've discussed Ortiz many times, you know, why is Hearn signed him? What do we think Ortiz would do? And when we were having those discussions, Ortiz was the monster, the Cuban, the skilled amateur, you know, power, you know, he, you know, we we built him up to be this absolute monster that Malik Scott kind of exposed to a degree. I'm not going to say he fully exposed him, but Malik Scott did what if I was his trainer, I'd have asked him to do. He said, "Look, we don't know how old Malik, we don't know how old Ortiz really is. He's not very mobile. You know, he's very clever in the ring, but he's not mobile. His foot speed's not great." Dance around him for a bit, see if you can draw the sting out of him. So so Scott does that. He he runs for the first couple of rounds. The ref actually has to stop the fight and say, mate, stop running. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. He was like, listen, you're here to have a fight. <clears throat> but I found it strange that Ortiz couldn't deal with that. 
you know, he he is it because I didn't see it. I wasn't watching, but could he just not cut the ring off to stop Scott from from doing it? He was cutting the ring off, but what, so he'd take one step and Scott would take two. And at some point, he should have figured out that actually, if I shuffle twice, I want to put more pressure on him, and then he's going to be open for my punches. So you have this this thing where Ortiz is not getting his shots off. He's he's pretty much throwing two hit combinations. It's all very it was all very predictable. And so, you know, Scott got knocked down a few times. None of them looked legitimate. He actually looked like he threw himself down, I'm not gonna lie. Like, it, <laughs> Wouldn't it, be the first. No. <laughs> he, he he looked like he threw himself down. Um you know, but by the fifth or sixth round, what you started to see was you started to see the the Philly in him. So so Malik Scott actually showed he's a pretty skilled boxer under pressure, you know, but it was sparring partner mode. That was the problem. So he was able to nullify a lot of what Ortiz was doing, but he wasn't able to get enough of his own work off. So he's hitting him with counter right hands, which is good. But Ortiz just didn't have the nerve to go, I need to up my work rate to take this guy out. It seemed like he was scared of getting countered. So basically, we've got to ask ourselves, you know, was Ortiz all that he's cracked up to be? My my gut feeling is no. I genuinely think Anthony Joshua would have taken Malik Scott out in three rounds. Deontay Wilder did it comprehensively it enough. Yeah. So so what you can see is Malik Scott struggles when you have fast foot speed. Wilder has pretty good foot speed. Chisora, for all his limitations, has great foot so speed. So you mean Luis Ortiz struggles with foot speed? No, no, Malik Scott. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Malik Scott tr- struggles with foot speed. We'll come on to Ortiz. Oh, yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, so, sorry. So, 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 so when you look at when you look at Malik Scott, he's there to be taken because you know the people he's faced that we know have dealt with him convincingly. You know, he, he, you know, they like to build Malik Scott up into this you know great heavyweight who's just been unlucky. And yes, he had a torn bicep for a few years, but even before that, his record wasn't that great. He's he's almost the gatekeeper's gatekeeper. And as for Ortiz, I'd be very, very worried because he doesn't move fast enough. He He's very one-paced. He's very much like Mike Perez, where there's no additional gears. You know, with, with Mike Perez, what you saw was what you got. He couldn't move up the gears. He couldn't move down the gears. And Ortiz has exactly the same problem. I have a question. Rewind the clock, say, uh, I think it was as little as four months. And we were talking about Ortiz perhaps being the forgotten man in the heavyweight division who who could potentially be a big threat. Why did we think that, or or what's changed? Well, he had, he had basically smashed Brian Jennings to pieces, and so Brian Jennings is a name. He'd also dealt with Tony Thompson convincingly, but I think I said at the time I was never convinced by those two wins because Jennings hasn't got the skill level or the experience level that Ortiz has. Let's remember one of our podcasts where we said Ortiz in two thousand five boxed in the in the amateur world cup same event that Golovkin boxed in as well and you know <clears throat> it had that team of superstars I think Yuri Orcas Gamboa was in that as well it was basically a Cuban all-star team so he he has a you know to quote Sky Sports he has a tremendous amateur pedigree <laughs> um so he should be dealing with these kind of problems he he was a he was an amateur for a long time there should be no surprises in the ring for him but he couldn't he just he couldn't move through the gears and I was watching that going, what would David Hay do to this guy? David Hay would have knocked him out. I don't know what Ortiz's chin's like under pressure, but Hay would have got to him eventually. Would Joshua beat him? I think if, if he fought Joshua on the 10th, Joshua beats him comfortably. I think Joshua stops him. For that same reason, Joshua can move through the gears. Like He may not be the most skilled boxer there is, 
But in terms of being able to accelerate his pace, he's pretty good at that. And, you know, he will hurt you with that long game. And Ortiz seems to struggle with that. But I'm prepared to give Ortiz another chance. I think we need to see him with someone who shows up willing to fight. Because Malik Scott was in sparring partner mode for virtually the entirety of that fight. He took great pride in finishing the fight. You know, never mind not having given it a chance. So let's see what happens December 10th. Okay, so we we actually um, previewed Martin Murray versus Dmitry Chudinov, but that changed, didn't it? Yeah, seemingly out of nowhere, we we had <clears throat> we had Murray versus Lowell. I think Chudinov got a virus during the week, apparently. Oh, oh the the not enough money virus. Yeah, the matchroom check virus. <laughs> 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 Same one Arthur Abraham came down with about two weeks prior. Not enough money virus. I love it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a real debilitating one as well. Stops you getting in the ring, and yeah, you got to feel for the man. So, so they so they basically gave Martin Murray, this guy, Nuhu Lawal. Don't actually know his name. I'm guessing that's his name. <laughs> um, He's a number one German middleweight, undefeated. Um, and look, I'm happy Martin Murray's got to make a living and he can provide for his children. But I didn't watch the fight. I can't really comment on it. Sorry. All right. I think if we'd have actually dug deep into your... Uh into your psyche last week, you probably would have come to the conclusion that you would have happily missed that fight anyway. Yeah, well, you were missing it was not an accident, I promise you. <laughs> uh, Jane McDonald versus Solis. L- Liborio Solis, was yes. it? Yes. Oh. What, what an absolute robbery. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sky... <laughs> Last time he regained his composure, I'm sat at your call last night reporting on fights, flicking through Twitter, and the whole of like my Twitter timeline is just going off about how much Eddie Hearns paid off these judges. Um, so I haven't seen it, but the general consensus... they, they The judges wrote their cards in Eddie's hotel room on Friday night. They must have, because... Allegedly. I, I, they're zip undone. I watched the fight, Gosh. and I've watched, uh, <laughs> and I watched it again today just to make sure you know I wasn't I wasn't you know unduly harsh. Now McDonald not only started slow, but didn't look like he could deal with Salise. Salise looked really really clever, cute, all the things you want to see in a challenge. And you know credit where credit's due, McDonald's matched pretty hard because I think Salise is up there in the rankings, but. When when you have three commentators, and I think it was Bellew, Smith, and Adam Smith, so Paul Smith as well, Paul Smith Jr., were doing the commentary, and none of them gave the fight to McDonald. And these are wow. died through and through Sky diehards where they were just like, I can't see how he's, well, he kind of won this. So to get scores, and I can't remember what the scores One were. One of the judges, didn't they give Solis three rounds? It was one one seven one 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 to McDonald. He won on a unanimous decision. Where I thought, okay, if you're gonna rob him, make it a draw. Nah, it's the most disgusting scoring I've like. It's it's disgusting because you've got Dave Caldwell in the corner between the eleventh and the twelfth round, just going, listen. You're either going to be the current champion or the former world champion. And right now it's hanging by a thread. You need to sort yourself out. Oh yes, so outlaw. I didn't see this fight, so um, and I don't know. I don't even know the result of it. So 
and I'm, I'm assuming that some people, at least probably a minority of them, listen to this, will be in the same position. So outline exactly what not only you saw, but then what you expected, and then sort of you've, you've skated around it, but what, what was the actual result, and what did you expect to see, and why are you so outraged? So, so Jamie McDonald won on a unanimous decision. Scorecards were ridiculous. It was like 116, 112, 117, 111, and 115, 113, which is basically someone saying, mate, you won this easily. That, that's basically what you're saying here. And if you watch the entirety of that fight, what you what you actually see is Jamie McDonald going, I don't know what the hell's going on here. His jab wasn't working. His footwork wasn't there. His balance wasn't there. He wasn't able to, to dominate. And he had longer arms. He was a taller man and he couldn't control the range. And, you, you know, give Salisa's credit. My goodness, he was just punching hard to the body, to the head. He, he, was, he went in there to dominate. And I thought he did, you know... He, Maybe give McDonald the ninth because he was, you know, he he had silly staggered, but there's no way McDonald won. So, that what fight. would have, off the top of your head, what would have been Terry's scorecard for that match? Do you know what? Just even being like, just saying, look, give it to the hometown guy, I'll give him some credit. 150, 113 would have been a good score, or 160, 112 to Solise. And I don't think anyone would have been mad at that. Okay, it's pretty uh, conclusive about how you feel about it. Absolute, it's absolute robbery. <laughs> okay, Terry, take a step back. Tag in Mr. Theobald, because we're going to talk about the York Hall. The packed out, sold out, I believe. York Hall, uh, really good card. Yeah, so uh, Goodwin Promotions show Saturday night. Um, it was phenomenal like i've not seen as good a card at york hall and um i've been going a while somebody may pull me up on that i don't know but um right so we'll start with the headline fight leon mckenzie former footballer um in his 10th fight fighting for the english super middleweight title against jarmaine smile jarmaine smile is a man who previously beat lee markham um Jarmaine Smile came into that ring with the body of a heavyweight. Like I'm sure Terry can back me up on this. Jarmaine's nickname is the Smasher. Like there is not a super middleweight I have ever seen who carries an upper body of that man. Um, he's got toothpick legs or something. He, yeah, he hasn't got the the most sturdy looking legs in the world. But, but he's got the upper body like a stingray. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> um. How does he make the weight then? Honestly, looking at him, I, I couldn't tell you how he's making that weight. Is it um, another Canelo situation where he makes the weight and then eats 12 pizzas? Before? I don't know. But like, he is the most stacked man I've seen in that weight division ever. Um, so anyway, the fight goes out. Leon McKenzie is clearly very um, nervous to step into the range of smile. Like You can see that from the off. Um, McKenzie's trying to stick the jab out. Smile dominated maybe the first three rounds, I'd say, because McKenzie was just trying to... You know, it's his first fight up at title level, up at that that level. Um, and Smile had the better of him. You could see McKenzie didn't want to particularly engage, as I don't think any sane or sober human being would want to engage with a man that looks like Jarmaine Smile. Uh, and so McKenzie was trying to keep it at range. Smile was... Um, He's a very awkward Smile as well. He's quite an accomplished, nice boxer. Despite the size of him, he can box well. Um, very side on. Uh, he's got a nice defence on him. Um, but yeah, he was he was controlling it, and then there was a knockdown. I can't remember which round was it. The third, second, second, uh, I think. Um, which was never a knockdown, not in a million years. 
Um, it was right in front of me. I sat on the uh, the press table. Leon McKenzie lost his footing. It wasn't a knockdown. He went through the ropes almost essentially. And you said the ropes were really slack, weren't they? The ropes were very loose. Uh, McKenzie just backed into them, almost fell through them, like very nearly. I had Ian John Lewis, the referee, who was one of the judges, um, sat next to me, who like had to quickly jump backwards to get out of the way of where uh, McKenzie was about to fall through. And that got deemed a knockdown, which was absolutely atrocious. Like, should never have happened. But anyway, fight continues. By the middle rounds, um, McKenzie had started to establish his jab and was stepping in a little bit more. He wasn't committing. He's a southpaw. He wasn't committing to that left hand. He was still working off the jab. But Jarmaine Smiles' left eye was starting to puff up. By about round six, it was like closing, closing, and nearly closed. Um, and you could see he was clearly, clearly struggling with it. McKenzie was just targeting by now. Just All he was doing was just pouring the jab into the eye and like just closing that. At the end of every round, Jamin Smiles coming back into the corner where I am. His eye is getting worse and worse. The referee gives him a test at one point to see if he could count how many fingers and he could just about do it. It's a bit of an odd test. but uh... Especially for a boxer as well. You might They might struggle just with the count. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, you can say that to him. <laughs> Fuck me. Um, but yeah, he, he gets through that. And McKenzie dominated the second half of the fight as Smile had done the first half of the fight. I personally had it scored a draw. Um, uh, Smile never managed to connect with those big right hands. He's got a big right hand on him, as you'd expect from a man his size. McKenzie was very defensively astute in being able to back off when he, he could see it coming. Smile kind of, he almost teases the right hand at times. He waves the arm about a bit to like draw the attention to it before hitting the jab. Um, and it was scored as a, a split decision victory to Jermaine Smile. Can't remember the scores. They were fair. Like I had it down as a draw and that was with the knockdown counted. Without the knockdown, I'd have had it to McKenzie by a round. But I don't think you could really argue it. A, a split decision reflects the fact that it was a very close fight. Um... Yeah, it was an enjoyable, enjoyable fight, man. It was it was packed by that point in York Hall. Um, the least enjoyable thing about it was having Clifton Mitchell, Jarmaine Smiles' manager, sat next to me. He'd moved out of uh, the, the legitimate seating for managers and people like that and come and sat on the fucking press table next to me. And uh, in my view, completely unprofessional. But there you go. Um, Freyada. The stuff he was saying as well wasn't um, professional, but... You know. Gotta got love Clifton though, man. He, uh, he he's a character. Rules. He's yeah. a character. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not slating him or anything. Just my view on it. There's one thing I was gonna say though. Um, both those guys looked pretty accomplished in the ring. So just, you just, just even just watching the level of boxing those guys were trying to reach, man, it was that was good to it watch. It was a tactical fight. Yeah. Which is good, and thanks to JP Smith because I wouldn't have seen that otherwise, and Eric, <laughs> and Eric Guy as well with the camera. But I think JP ran out of battery, so I just switched to to Eric Guy's cast. But thank you to both those guys with the Facebook live feed. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a nice tactical fight. I say, given you've got somebody of the size of Smile, you might assume that he was going to turn it into a bit of a banging match whenever he could. But there were a couple of occasions Mackenzie stood in the pocket and traded with him. Um, he didn't do it all that frequently, and you can't blame. It would be a stupid game plan to do so. Um, but yeah, he was. McKenzie last night proved that he's a boxer. He's not a footballer playing about a boxing. He's a boxer. Uh, and I think respect to him for that. After 10 fights, taking that fight is, is good going. So where, where can McKenzie go from here? 
Well, he's 38 years old. He's talked about he's going to take a bit of time off. He's asked Smile for the rematch. We'll see. Um, I don't know if Smile will fancy it particularly. Smile probably wants to move on and look at British, uh, would be my guess. Um, Mackenzie, I don't know. It's a journey for him. You know, he's got a good backstory being the old professional footballer. 400 games, have about 150 in the Prem for Palace and Norwich. Um, depression as a, a backstory to it. He's accomplished an awful lot. He's accomplished probably more than you know 99% of footballers that tried to switch discipline would be able to do um so even if he calls it a day if he hangs up the gloves after that he's got stuff to offer the sport still he's trained by his dad Clinton McKenzie uh you know it's in his DNA as he says himself that like boxing is there for him uh Duke McKenzie his uncle former world champion so there's plenty that Leon if he did decide that was enough he could hang his gloves up with pride and he could move on and hopefully pass that on to other people I realise to some extent this is... I'm just going to ask the question, frankly. If that has been such a close fight between two blokes going for an English title, does that mean that they are both... By stepping out to British weight, they're both going to struggle or they're both sort of about that British... Do you, you well, see what I mean? Your British champion of that weight is Callum Smith, who's meant to be moving up to world title level. Callum Smith, I think, is penciled to fight Luke Blackledge. On the December the tenth undercard, that'll probably get announced sometime soon. Um, you don't, you don't really want to take on Callum Smith. You know, if you've got those options, if you're that level, if you're Jermaine Smile, if you're Leon McKenzie, you want to wait for that British title to become vacant, which it ultimately will do when Callum Smith moves on. There's no rush to take that fight. Wait for it to become vacant. You'll probably get a rocky field in in the opposite corner, which is a far easier fight. Um, so it's not to say they can't move up a level. It's just that Callum Smith is meant to be a level above that and probably is we'll find out at some point quite how far above he is i don't know but how old's jermaine smile pass um early 30s i think um don't know so he's probably got a bit more time to go for yeah he's, he's got more years in him okay what well, uh run us through some other fights in that night then right so let's say it, the place was was heaving was banging it was like a phenomenal show so one of the biggest upsets, Freddie Kiewit. Uh This is in an English super lightweight uh, title eliminator. Freddie Kiewit is a feared man. He's a massive uh, prospect working out of the Mickey Amu g- uh, gym over at SW Pro. Um, yeah, he's he's a highly touted prospect. He got schooled by Akeem Ennis Brown, a man from Gloucester. Um Brown wasn't meant to be fancied going into this. It was all, all the hype was about um, Freddie Kiewit and uh, Akeem Ennis Brown. Let's give him a shout out first of all for having a rapper bring him down to the ring. <laughs> down at your call, you got to respect that. <laughs> That's not seen very often. Um, but Brown is just an awkward, awkward sort of a fighter. Like you wouldn't really want to be in the opposite corner to him. He's uh, hands low all the time, toying with you. Freddie Kiewit is a man who, like, just look at him. He's in phenomenal shape. He's explosive. All of his attacks come in explosive attacks. Akeem Ennis Brown probably had a good three inches in reach over him. So Brown was just hitting the jab. And what he would do was he would hit the jab. You would see Kiewit try to explode off the toes, coming into that space, trying to uh, close it and land. All that Ennis Brown did for the whole fight was just pivot off as he was pivoting, throw the uppercut, and Kiewit had nothing. He was just throwing it thin air through the whole fight. Um, you know, he tried to like engage him, and Brown was just too clever, too smart. 
Um, Brown knocked him down uh, fairly early, fairly early on in the fight. Um, it wasn't. It was a bit of a flash knockdown, really. But Kiwit, as soon as that explosiveness had gone by about the fourth round, you could see he was puffing a bit harder. That explosiveness wasn't there anymore. And from then on, Kiwit uh, just he took him to school a bit, and it was impressive. He's uh, he's a very very good fighter. Other major fight on the undercard was a Commonwealth title fight. Um, Duke Mika, Olympian, bantamweight. Um, I think he's got 14 victories, 13 by way of knockout. Feared puncher uh, out of Ghana, taking on Matthew Chander out of London. Um, down in Hackney, I think he is. Matthew Chander, who's a man who works in a school like Monday to Friday, such a nice man, Matthew Chander. Like, he does a lot of good community work. He's getting um, young kids out of gangs, off the streets, into boxing gyms and shit like that. Like, Matthew Chander, 100% is one of the nicest men I've ever met in boxing. Um, Chander's a Southern Area uh, champion. So you're going from Southern Area in his last fight to Commonwealth title fight against an Olympian from Ghana. Chanda smothered everything that Duke Mika could do for like the entire fight. Now, it was it was really a mixture of whether you like quality over quantity or quantity over quality. Like that's what it came down to. Chanda just shut that distance all the way through twelve rounds, twelve hard rounds at bantamweight. Um, and Duke Mika just fought, I would say, probably eleven rounds of the twelve off the ropes, and he was throwing these bolo punches over the top, of the big looping right hand. It wasn't a traditional like straight right. He was just countering with his big right hands over the top, spiteful right hands as well. Like he can hit um, uppercuts. Like he was just relying on that right uppercut as uh, Chanda was. It must be so hard to fight Chanda because you can't look for counters because he's just incessant. He just comes forward and throws and throws and throws. Not necessarily like... <laughs> you'd, you'd struggle to say that it's a great technique, but what it is is a great style to stifle what your opponent does. And that stifled Duke Mika to the point where Duke Mika was, I say, just fighting off the ropes all the time, bar maybe one or two rounds when Chanda took his foot off a little bit. And I don't blame... It's not criticism. It was a way of him surviving 12 rounds. Um... But it was honestly like a phenomenal effort by both guys. Huge respect. Mika is another uh, Mickey and Moo fighter. Um, I'd like to see him go on. I'd like to see both people go on. Chanda is built for TV fights. Uh, and I think, you know, in a different style of opponent, Duke Mika would be built for TV fights as well because you can clearly see he's got that spite in his punches that would make for nice viewing. Uh, and Chanda's just an exciting. He doesn't punch overly hard. Uh, sort of against Jamie Spate when he won the Southern Area title. He just, again, smothered the work rate um, through his own work rate. And that's what he does. He's in your face for, you know, 10, 12 rounds. And he can do that. I missed, I missed most of the fight. But the bits I saw, I think Chanda had the black shorts, right? Yes. Some of his defensive work was pretty good. There's a time where I swear he must have bobbed about eight times. Oh, mate. <laughs> eight times in a row yeah no he was like he would have him against the ropes and then just he was ducking he was bobbing as you say like bobbing underneath the hook and then coming back with his own sh his own shots lacked the power really to like Mika was never hurt and to be fair I was chatting with Matthew after the fight and I said to him you know was Mika's power as bad as you know you'd probably expect it before and he said nah not really um, but whether that's because Mika never had that space to be able to do his quality boxing. You can see he's a quality boxer who should never given the opportunity to do it. That's the game plan if you want to beat Mika. Because did he lose to is it Michael Conlon in 2012 Yeah, he lost to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is no shame in losing that no, fight. Um, 
so yeah, look, both men, like huge respect. Both men can go on places. A uh, bit of a breakout fight for Matthew Chander. Uh, hopefully he'll get picked up for bigger fights after that. Um, you know, Commonwealth title for Duke Mika. He can move on from that. He's going to struggle because where do you sell him? He can't go for British titles and stuff like that, uh, being a Ghanaian. So he's going to have to take the Richard Comey route of going off overseas, you would assume, uh, unless any of the Bantam weights over here fancy having a go with him. But he's not going to be high up in the queue when you've got the likes of Ryan Burnett um, and Eddie Hearn's going to be trying to get Lee Haskins' belt off him for Burnett. Um, yeah, I, there's not going to be huge options. You know, Jamie McDonald's not going to be rushing for a fight with him anytime soon. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, like, what a card. The undercard uh, was hit and miss in places. But those three fights at the top of the bill were just awesome. Like, it took the roof off the place. I've not seen it like that for a long time. Uh, and well done to everyone involved. Uh, on a slightly more personal note, you took your dad down there, didn't you? I did, yeah. Um, um, did he enjoy it? He loved it. He loved it. He absolutely loved uh, coming sitting down. Um, you know, he's a bit of a casual fan by his own admission. He'll probably be listening to this at some point. So, hi, Dad. Um, but yeah, now he uh, he really enjoyed it and got that different perspective of you know, like even before all the action kicked off, we sat around with young lad Aidy Burden who was getting his gloves delivered by the whip on the night. Um, so I managed to get you know grab the gloves off him just to show him to my dad like how little padding is in a ten ounce boxing glove. Like for those people listening who have never felt one, it's like inhuman. Those 10-ounce gloves are inhuman. It may as well be like a piece of paper wrapped over your hand. And so, like, to then see that and then see those same lads stepping in the ring and getting fucking walloped with them is uh, is a different perspective to it. And then to think that some people in the past have taken some of that padding out, like you said, Terry. Ah, uh, Panama Lewis. <laughs> I watched that YouTube video with a, where... I, who's the... Billy... What was the... the I don't know if I know, yeah. Yeah, the, the, uh, the American-Irish yeah. dude. And uh, the the as he goes over to congratulate you, and the dad grabs the gloves. Yeah, he's like, what, the trainer. What the hell is this? Oh, it's definitely worth looking up. Panama Cause, Lewis. Because there's a whole documentary about about it. Because it was just basically utter carnage. It's um, horrible. Yeah, he's never the same man again after that. Um, and he comes, sits in the corner at several points during the match. and goes, he's a tougher guy than I thought he was going to be. <laughs> Probably because he feels like he's hitting him with a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know how much that. How much does that? Even if they are thin, those gloves, how much power does that take out? That even that minimal amount. It's of... not that. It's if you've ever seen a boxer's hands fully wrapped up, like it's it's like having one of those MMA gloves on. Like they, you're properly wrapped up. You're locked in. So what that means is you can commit fully to your power shots, and it's just about whether the bones in your hand can cope with the force you generate. So there are guys who like Calzaghe who have hand trouble because. The power they generate is greater than their ability to cope with it, and Prince right. Nassim had the same thing. Okay, um, we've sort of done. You've got no more to mention on New York call now. That, no, we're good. Terry, no. Nope. Um, okay, let's talk about uh, Ward Kovalev coming up this weekend. Um, okay, so it's, it seems on paper like it's going to be a pretty interesting fight. What have you got to say about it? It's the rarest of rare things, isn't it, really, where you've got two fighters near enough in their prime who are seen as, you know, the uh, mythical pound-for-pound pound top of the list. Um, what a great what a great event. It's it's everything Mayweather-Pacquiao should have been, but it's not getting the headlines that Mayweather-Pacquiao got. Um, but, you know, let's all get behind it. Let's all watch it. 
let's stay up and see it on stream or on Box Nation or whatever. It's going to be something special. Um, two great talents. Kovalev is um, mislabeled in certain quarters as being a banger. He's not a banger. He's a very astute boxer who can hit very hard, uh, who knocks people out. Ward is the opposite in that he's seen as a very technical fighter um, without having punch power. Well, you know, that's not necessarily true. Actually, they both meet somewhere in the middle, and that's what makes it so intriguing. Um, For me, I see Andre Ward picking up a points victory. I see him picking up maybe a fairly wide points victory. Uh, I see it going in a fairly similar vein to the Carl Froch fight in that we'll all get to the end of it and say Andre Ward spoiled that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't see... He's not going to let Kovalev get his best work off. He's not going to let Kovalev unload those right hands on him that Kovalev does. Look back at uh, Kovalev, Isaac Chalemba. Isaac Chalemba made life so awkward for him in there. Um, we've seen Isaac Chalemba in with Tony Bellew. Um we know what he's about. We know what level he's at. He made life difficult for Sergei Kovalev. He caused him a lot of problems at times. I can see it being... Um, you know, Andre Ward is a far better version of Isaac Chalemba. And I can see Andre Ward causing Kovalev more problems. I can see him you know, coming out maybe, you know, three, four point winner for me. Um, I love Andre Ward. And... I think of the active boxers who are around right now, he does everything and he does everything beautifully. Um, I'm praying that in this fight, what we see is Andre Ward showing you how to nullify. And it's, it's something Hopkins was great at. Hopkins was go, what's your greatest weapon? And then take that away from you. And I think if Ward can somehow turn this into an inside brawl, you know, not necessarily be dirty with it, but make it rough on the inside, you know, give himself a bit of breathing room, fire off a left hook, straight right, shut the distance down again, and just frustrate Kovalev for the first half of the fight. I think we'll ask questions because, you know, Kovalev has a good trainer in John David Jackson, who now also trains Curtis Stevens as well. So it'll be interesting to see if he sets Kovalev up the way he set him up against Hopkins, which is establish your power early and then look to take him out. Or whether he says, actually, you're going to be a bit cuter, do everything off the jab, just control the jab for a while, don't let the power go till maybe three or four rounds in. Don't really know. What I do know is Ward will have the answer. Now, whether whether his chin can take Kovalev's power will be interesting because I think if he takes the first power shot, then it's Ward's fight comfortably. Um, but if, if he has the same reaction to the power that Hopkins did, then it'll be a trickier fight overall. So you're both looking forward to it. That sounds good. Let's not forget Clarissa Shields' debut. So the first of the female Olympic gold medalists to turn pro will happen on the same evening. I've seen some sparring footage of Clarissa Shields. She's looking good. I really want her to succeed. Um, if anyone, if anyone goes to my website, you'll know I speak really highly of her, and I think she will suffer badly at the hands of a media who has a defined view of femininity and that you can't be a female boxer kicking ass and endorse products. So I want her to do well because if she does well, female boxing will do well. So good luck to her on Saturday. She's more than ready. Um, And that will be an interesting subplot on this card. Amen to that. Uh, I just want to ask a question that I hope isn't a non-question, so to speak. Um, like mine sort of said just before we spoke, previewed the Ward-Kovalev fight, it's a fight 
in terms of its um, well-matchedness, if you like, we don't see a lot of. So the question I kind of have is, why is it happening? Uh, and I feel like the legitimacy for the question is the fact that we don't see these fights happen enough. Money. So, award signs to Rock Nation. Rock Nation are like, <laughs> we need to establish ourselves as credible in boxing. They've got Miguel Cotto, who's basically got them over a barrel. So, Mikel Cotto is on pretty meaty guarantees with Rock Nation. Adrian Broner fucked him off stupidly. <laughs> but you're regretting that one, Aid. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 the guarantees. I think Cotto's on a 15 million guarantee for his next fight, which makes it hard for Rock Nation to match him because they need to generate that money. And the other reason it's happening is because Adonis Stevenson has shown no interest in fighting either of them. Although he said he'll fight the winner. <laughs> I'll say I'll fight the winner. I don't mean it's going to happen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> He's had every opportunity. And like, don't get me wrong, I'm sure it's not all his side. There's been all the stuff from Kathy Duval of uh, Kovalev's side playing about with TV networks, etc. It's, it's all the shite that goes along with boxing, the TV networks, the politics, etc. That's all gone to one side for this fight. And it's just seemingly... And I, I think that's almost why it's kind of not gone under the radar because to boxing fans, it hasn't gone under the radar. But to a wider appeal... There hasn't been the build-up of, as we said earlier, Mayweather-Pacquiao, which took years and years for the two to get into the ring, past their prime, etc., etc. These two have just done it quietly and signed the paperwork and turned up and they've not thrown tables, they've not bad-mouthed each other. They're just going to get in the ring and fight and that's almost to the detriment of the promotion. So briefly take us over the Danny Vargas, uh, sorry, Danny Garcia versus Vargas fight, but also what's going to be happening on March the 4th. Um... Garcia needed a fight. He'd been out of the ring for a while, you know, and he wanted he wanted rounds, really, because I think what's happened now, Al Heyman has basically said to his fighters, listen, I've paid you well for a year and a half now. You've all made good money. Now it's time for you to put back into the pot. So he's matching his fighters quite aggressively. So Garcia said, fine, I need a fight, you know, bit, bit of Ferrari money, whatever it is. Let me have a hometown fight, get some rounds in, ahead of lightly fighting Thurman in early March so he fought in his hometown of Philadelphia um, you know fought a guy called Sammy Vargas Vargas a guy who was stopped in four rounds by Errol Spence but in his defence he took the fight at relatively short notice this one he had a full camp to prepare Garcia looked good with the left hook not the devastating power he had at 140 but Garcia was never really a power puncher what he is he's a hard puncher so you'll always feel his shots and he always seems to time them so you get hit when you're most vulnerable. Lucas Matisse is a testament yeah, to that. Exactly. So, good good enough fight. Garcia put him over in the second round with a wonderful right hand. Had, had Thurman speechless, maybe even a little nervous. Um, fight stopped in the seventh. Basically, Vargas was just taking a slapping. The ref just decided to save him to fight another day. It wasn't a fight he was going to win. But really what the fans wanted to see was the afters. So Garcia stands on the ring apron, you know, the you know, bit of verbals with Thurman. Thurman comes into the ring, you know, the whole usual back and forth to set the fight up. It looks like it's going to be March the 4th. And, you know, let those two guys get it on. I, I think Thurman probably has all the advantages. But the thing about Danny Garcia is he's done all of his best work being an underdog. So I would never rule Garcia out. And when you've got a dad like Angel Garcia, then do you know what I mean? Number one, anything's possible. Number two, it's always good for entertainment. 
And you know that Danny can sit in the background in the build-up to that fight and Angel will take the mic and Angel will do all the selling for it whilst Danny can concentrate on actually getting in the ring. Um, as you say, he's an underdog. He's been an underdog. He was an underdog against uh, Amir Khan when he went in and you know stopped him in fairly brutal fashion. Um, as much as Khan will always argue the point that you know he should have gone on or whatever, um, there's always that brilliant referee footage <laughs> of the uh, the camera pinned to the lapel where Amir Khan's stumbling around like someone coming out of Weatherspoons at fucking one in the morning. Um, so yeah, it's uh, what a fight! Like this is the kind of fight we want to see. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a cracking welterweight fight, and you know maybe I'm sure Kel Brook has got an eye on it. And, and I guess the point here is this is about validating your legacy, validating your titles, saying you're the guy on top, and these are the fights we want to see. You know, we're just waiting for this to happen in the heavyweights now. Okay, let's talk about. Frank Warren and his BT Sport adventures. So it's been a bit of a, I don't know, an earthquake, so to speak, or at least a, um, a bit of a tremor going on in uh, in world boxing, in term, well, in UK boxing anyway. Um, uh, Terry. Uh, so so, so w- w- when I hear about deals like this, what I always like to look at is, first of all, I look at the product and I go, what's this product really? And boxing, boxing for Sky is almost like the cousin of its football. So, so Sky Sports is basically football-driven. All the subscriptions are football-driven. You get Sky Sports because you want to watch the premiership. What Sky then choose to invest in on top of that will be complimentary. So It's nice to have. Yeah. Boxing's a nice to have. It's not that important. Sky can ditch it whenever they want, just like they did after Hey Harrison. So the product's not that special for Sky. But for BT who now have a football presence, now have the Champions League presence. Plus the rugby. Yeah. What you actually want now is that sport that all these guys quite like to watch, and it's boxing. So BT say to themselves, we could go into this ourselves. You know, we could yeah, we could do BT boxing. But what's the point? When you have Box Nation, which by most experts' assessments is struggling, so you're likely to get a deal on your terms. So BT likely have a deal on their own terms where Box Nation do all of the work, BT just get it on their platform. So that's more subscribers for them, which then poses the question, why would you subscribe to Box Nation if you're hooked up to BT Sport? It's, uh, for those that haven't read the detail of it, it's 20 shows per year Box Nation have put forward um, that they're going to show on BT Sport. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. That's over one a month. That's nearly two a month if you take the boxing season into account, discard August. Uh, And that's their shows. That's not international ones as well. So it's 20 per year that they're putting out, plus uh, Box Nation is going to carry 10 um, individual shows per year that won't be on BT Sport. So expect them to put on... You know, the likes of um, Billy Joe Saunders, Liam Smithy have managed to um, buy a t- sorry, win a title back. Um, <laughs> yeah, They've teamed up with Huey Fury on Box Nation now. What they're doing, um, Frank Warren, is they've made a very, very astute um, pairing or partnership with MGM. MGM has signed in fighters left, right and centre. They signed Huey Fury. Uh, don't forget they've got David Price. All of Team Fury. Now. Yeah, all of Team. I don't think it includes Tyson, although I might be wrong. I, th- I think Tyson's a separate entity. No, no one would answer that question. Yeah, uh, which probably tells you it's a no. I, yeah. I might be wrong, but um, you know they've got the likes of Martin Murray's on their books. Um, <laughs> yay! 
<laughs> now that will sell some tickets. Yeah. Uh... There's loads of fighters. They've got like a hundred odd fighters on their books. They've been putting on shows themselves up in Manchester, up in Scotland, in Birmingham. There's talk of them doing it in London. Um, and MGM have essentially paired up with uh, Frank Warren. So is it, these are astute business decisions by Frank Warren. These right? are very like yeah. what he's done is he's he's built in the background. So he's been doing these little deals. I say little. It's not really little, but stuff like the teaming up with Huey Fury a while back, and they were going to get him on. Um, on a Box Nation platform, I'm sure the Huey Fury, Team Fury link up with MGM has probably been in the the balance for months. Um, so all this stuff, it's all lots of little pieces that have been put into a, a far bigger um, scenario. And now the end goal is that they get this BT Sports. So you'll start to see that there's money that wasn't available before, I'm sure. Like, BT Sport aren't going to want to buy a product. Because BT Sport, like, they've got the Champions League. They've got the Premier League, or, you know, some of the Premier League. They've got sole access to the Champions League. They've got the Rugby Union. Like, those are are three quality products. What they're not going to want to do is put out a second-rate boxing product. They're going to want a full package of quality sporting products. There's a lot of free transfers going around in the boxing world at the moment. Amir Khan, uh, David Hay. Uh, there's a few other I can't remember off the top of my head uh, but British ones James DeGale will be coming up soon Lee Selby will be coming up soon um, you know free transfers that could ultimately end up being paired up with Frank Warren who's going to be the first matchroom fighter to jump ship and go to Warren uh, like high profile matchroom fighter we've had a few um, in the past the likes of Lucian Reed, uh, Ben Hall have gone there but um, there's going to be some interesting moves now because this will open up a checkbook for Frank Warren that he's not had courtesy of Raynham Steel. Um, this is a different league that he's going to be playing in now. So, you know, we might even see Billy Joe Saunders fight one day. I don't know. I don't, like, I don't, let's not push it. Baby steps. <laughs> Baby steps. Um, but in terms of, you know, this is, um, this is a big thing. This is a big... What I'll be interested in is, do BT Sport have final approval of the cards? in the same way Barry Francis does for Sky. Um, because that would be important because if Warren can just throw dross on his cards, what you can imagine Warren doing is saying, well, you know, I've got guys, my my mid to undercard fighters, I'm just going to throw them on, they'll do 15 of these, 15 of these dates we're committed to, that's fine. But as a BT, so actually, no, 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 we want to approve all the headline fights, if nothing else, or the top three fights on the bill. Because, I can imagine what BT want. So I know this from just a wider discussion around BT. What BT really want is to be a multi-platform player. That's why they bought EE. So what you're looking at here actually isn't just, oh, BT have signed Frank Warren. It is this. If you're an EE customer, they want you to be able to watch the boxing while you travel. If you're an EE customer, you'll get the news and all of this stuff that's bundled in. So now you're saying to yourself, I quite like boxing. My life is easier if I have BT Sports to watch stuff at yeah. home, BT <clears throat> Infinity Broadband, so you know I can still access a lot of the content via my tablet, and then I can join the EE network to get the stuff piped which, down to my. Which data. is great, but does the fact that they've asked for twenty shows a year—is that what you said it was? Yeah. Mean that just by definition, it's going to have to dilute any talent you, that you, Frank not Warren necessarily. Has. So, so. One of the things I've said on this podcast is we should segment our shows. So there should be shows where you have your Boy Jones Jr., your Anthony Yards, your young guys. Let these guys have their own show. We all expect it not to be great in terms of ratings, 
but we put them in challenging fights and you build them. And Warren's relatively good at doing that. So you have those shows. And then you have another tranche of shows where it's like, well, actually, these are the ones you want to sit down and watch because these are these are fights that mean something. These are the fights that set up the pay-per-views that will come. So you have your your up-and-comers, you have your your almost your narrative fights, which set bigger things up, and then you have your pay-per-view channel. Well, sorry, Martin, just one, just one thing. When we had boxing that was, ex- sorry, football that was exclusively on Sky, we had pay-per-view football. Then BT got involved. I admitted there was there was other sort of providers before that, but let's just say for the for sake of ease, BT got involved and that got rid of pay per view football. Will we see a continuation of pay per view on now on BT and on Sky, or could this see the end of pay per view? No, it will continue on Box Nation. Um, I think ultimately what you're looking at is Box Nation is going to uh, dissolve within probably eighteen months, and you'll find that. Frank Warren is then the BT boxing provider. Uh, I don't see the point in having Box Nation. I think that what they're probably going to end up having to do, given you've got to put 20 products out per year on the BT platform, is that you're probably going to see uh, Warren start to partner, utilise some of the small hall promoters. Um, so not a million miles away from what Match Room's Fight Pass was meant to be, in that they teamed up with Dave Coldwell, uh, and with somebody else and with Steve Goodwin so that they could provide um, a higher volume of shows. I think you're probably going to see the Box Nation becomes that higher volume. And so you're going to get, um, if it was my guess, you're going to end up with some of the other small hall promoters teaming up with Warren to provide a product so that their fighters are then on a TV platform and they can, um, you know, use that as a selling point of them as small hall promoters. They've got a TV platform, a TV deal. So don't be surprised to see maybe somebody like a Mickey Helliot starting to provide product for them in due course. Um, Not Steve Goodwin? Uh, I don't know. I would be surprised. I think from what I know, which, you know, I'm, uh, I speak with Steve fairly regularly. Um, I don't think it's something that they would necessarily be involved in. Uh, I'd be surprised to see it happen. Because what it would do, like I'm just thinking out loud here, is if you have a platform, you can then say, actually, instead of having all my shows in York Hall, I can have a show in Milton Keynes. I can have a show in Luton. I can have a show in Birmingham. Because all of a sudden, your guys are now, they're, they're now known. And I guess it opens up options, but it's about the execution. It's always for the uh, for the small hall promoters. It's about the balance. Ultimately, small hall small hall boxing runs on ticket sales. So if you start as a small hall promoter, giving your product away for free on TV without being recompensed uh, by the broadcaster, then it's a flawed business model. Uh, you need to get those ticket sales in. And it's very hard for a fighter to sell tickets when you know their mates, their friends, their family find out that actually they're going to be on. Um, you know, it happened with Mickey Hellier. He was teamed up with London Live, and it became very difficult at that point to fill your call because all their friends and family stayed at home to watch it on London Live rather than turn up at the venue and pay thirty-five quid for the privilege. Um, so yeah, it's always going to be a balance to any small hall promoter to to find out if that's worthwhile. It's only my guess, as I say. I think what we're probably going to end up seeing is Box Nation will no longer be there in 18 months and they will just provide to BT Sport and we'll lose that other stuff that Box Nation has. So the, you know, the magazine style programs and stuff I don't like think, that. Or, I don't think you will. So I think, I actually think that stuff will come over 
as will the library, the Warren Library, will come over as well. And then it's about what other libraries BET has access to. So will they license the ESPN library? Uh, there are opportunities, but you'd like you to just know... qualify library? Yes, so all, all the old fights. Right. Yeah, so the Calzaghi fights and stuff yeah. like that for Warren. Okay, does this have the potential to grow the sport? Or is it going to shrink the sport? It introduces a new potential viewership to the sport. So some people, like me, for instance, I used to get BT Sport. I don't know what the deal is with BT Sport now, but I used to get it for free because I had BT Broadband. I don't know if that's still the deal or not. Um, but for those people that don't want to pay for Sky Sports, but may anyone who's got BT Sport has, at the very minimum, I would suspect if they've gone to the effort of getting BT Sport, they will have a casual interest in boxing as a very minimum because they're paying for a sports channel. They've probably also got a casual interest in darts, casual interest in any other thing. Typically, you'll find that it's probably rugby and football fans who have paid for BT Sport because that's the two main things that they sell their platform on. Those people, people that like football and rugby, will typically have an interest in boxing. And so they may have bought... You know, if they're, if they're not a Sky subscriber, take Customer X. They're not a Sky subscriber because that costs... £40 a month, BT Sport costs you £10 a month, whatever it is. Customer X might well buy Tyson Fury, Vladimir Klitschko on pay-per-view. They might well buy Kel Brook, Gennady Golovkin um, because they see it advertised. But now they're getting access. If they've already got BT Sport, they're getting access to that boxing on the Saturday night. All that BT Sport have to do is run a few adverts during the half-time breaks of the Champions League game, the Premier League games, and you bring those same people in that are watching it on Sky Sports but you've got a different avenue of customers that, you know, the ones that don't have Sky, uh, the ones that only have BT, you've got that additional avenue of customers now. So yeah, it does. It, there's potential there to tap into a stream of revenue, a stream of customers that haven't previously um, invested into the sport. What it relies upon is a quality product. And that's what Frank Warren has, you know, over the last few years struggled to put out. Uh, certainly on a consistent basis. You know, go back to December last year, you and I, Andy, went up for Andy Lee versus Billy Joe Saunders. The product that they're selling was shit compared to a matchroom show. Now, I'm not a big fan of the Sweet Carolina throwing your T-shirt around your head, but that's a night out. That's a boys' night out. That's an event. That's a product. Frank Warren still looks like it's a show from back in the 70s. Do you know what I mean? It's... It wouldn't All he's missing is people smoking, really. Well, yeah, it's it, that is the uh, the that's their product at the moment. So they need to revolutionise and bring it up to speed. And I'm sure BT will give them a hand in doing so. So I tell you who will help them, and I know they're trying to make this arrangement. And people hate me saying the name, so everyone knows what name I'm about to say. Because if you look at whatever you say about the quality of opponents, if you look at the hay fights, both hay fights. They were really good events, and I know Dave got the broadcasting wrong, but to be there, you felt actually this is a high quality. He tapped production. into the Eddie Hearn model. Yeah, and if if they bring that over to BT Sport, what it will mean is Eddie's got to up his game. So we can't have these fights anymore where you're fighting number 132 in the world. So so now Eddie's going to have to look to his fighters and say, "Look, I'm going to have to match you hard. Otherwise, we're not going to get the viewership, and we're not going to get the pay per view." So what you're saying is. BT, this deal with BT and Frank Warren, it could basically force everyone into everyone giving a quality product, or maybe everyone just make do makes do with giving a dross product. And well, people no, no, continue no. But, buying but, it. But look, the same things happened in America, right? Where Showtime and HBO have said, "Look, there isn't enough money in the pot for both of us to be egocentric and doing things our own way." So 
we need to work together at key moments to make sure we keep generating the revenue. And I'm sure what you're going to start to see is Sky and BT going, at some point we need to work together. There isn't enough money and we don't want to be wasting millions in marketing pounds when we're not delivering what we should. Hey, it's a it's, it's valid point. Um, just because like, if you look at something like the product of football, you know every... Every season, you're going to see at least say eight games that you don't. You're not relying on draws. You're not relying on um, draws in cups, for example. You're not relying on deals being made. You know those games are going to happen, and then you get the bonus of the games and the Champions League, or, uh, the cups and the Champions League, and all that sort of stuff. Whereas in boxing, you can easily get for an entire season. Well, what you said this time last year, Billy Joe, Billy Joe Saunders. If you're a fan of that particular boxer, you haven't seen him box for a year, and it might not happen for another six months. Coogan Cassius tweeted earlier a uh, a list of fights that he made at the end of last year that he wanted to see this year, <laughs> and put it out as like, well, none of these have happened. Uh, and it wasn't like the inconceivable fights. It wasn't like we were going to dig up Muhammad Ali and get him in with fury or whatever. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was it was real fights. It was like Eubank Saunders too. It was. Groves, uh, De Gale too. It was Haskins, McDonald. It was perfectly conceivable fights, but they've just not happened, and it's been a poor year. Yes. Okay. Let's. Uh, have you got? Have you got anything more to talk about that? Or can we can move on to no, our no, 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 extensive library of questions that we have to offer? So rewind the clock about something like three weeks, a month. My memory deserts me slightly. But David Hay came on Twitter and he said going to be announcing my opponent within a week or something you're going to be happy john malau <clears throat> writes in and asks when is david hay going to announce his opponent um that was a and then b why announce and let people buy tickets then nothing can i just chuck this out like I, I warned john on twitter that the answer to this the actual legit answer to this i think what i see as being the legit one is going to sound like i'm taking the piss but i'm not from what I understand, David Hay came out after that and like after the date had passed that he said he was going to announce his fight and clearly there's a hold up somewhere. Like clearly there was a plan and that plan hasn't quite come off. He came out and said his opponent is cancer and he's going to help beat cancer. I'm not making this up. No, no, he did. Uh, he yeah, came he out and said my opponent is cancer. I'm beating cancer. I'm part of beating cancer. That's who his opponent that he was going to announce was. Yeah. David's not fighting this year. Um, what, so he ha- what, he has cancer? No, no. He's going to be part of the battle against cancer in the wider picture. Mm. Yeah, so like... Which is fine, but there's ways there's, of going about it, isn't there? Either he was just on the wind-up and getting his name out there at the same time Anthony Joshua's name was getting out there. Or a shameless opportunity and publicity. I've had, uh, you know, I've heard very reliable stories that he had the Millennium Stadium booked for December the tenth, and it didn't come off. Uh, whatever fight he was looking at just didn't come off, so he relinquished the date, uh, and we'll look at next year. So expect expect talks to be happening now with Bellew, and that will be the fight. While he waits to see who wins between Ruiz and Parker, because really, you know, it, <laughs> it's, a, it's a high class tick over fight. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just a nice little payday while you wait for your world title shot. Okay, going back to a point that Martin raised earlier, Callum Smith. This is from DB zero one eight seven on Twitter. Is Callum Smith the next to carp short in the same way that all the other Smith bros have so far? Of course he is. Of course he is. I see no other way this happens. Joe Gallagher has built a 
fucking model out of building fighters to wear opponents down into the later rounds. <laughs> Through just doing that, he's got them to a very high level, but they're never prepared for that high level. Let's look at every single fighter that he's had, the likes of, well, of recent days. So the likes of Liam Smith, soon as he met a high-class opponent, got taken apart. Paul Smith, high-class opponent, taken apart. Stephen Smith, high-class opponent, taken apart. Scott Quigg, high-class opponent, <laughs> taken apart. These are the ones I can remember off the top of my head right now. Callum Smith will be ticking over. Um, he'll probably take on Luke Blackledge, we said earlier, December 10th up in Manchester. Uh, it's if, if Smith is as good as they say he is, that's an easy fight. Um, Blackledge is a decent opponent. He's not a great opponent by any means. He's certainly not the bridge between where he's at now and taking on the winner of DeGale Jack. Like, it, he's just going to be left to make that massive leap as per every other Joe Gallagher uh, and on the whole, Eddie Hearn fire. And, and that's the thing I take massive issue with when you, you look at all the Smith brothers and it's all the same. You're just waiting for him to throw that left hook to the body. And everyone's now waiting for it. So everyone knows the approach. Keep it tight for six rounds. Open up. So what fighters are now doing is taking it out of them. So you're looking, you're seeing fighters now going to the body on, on Gallagher fighters a lot earlier, slowing them down and also defeating them with skill. So just using that movement to make them work twice as hard. And do I think Callum Smith will come up short? Yes, because if you look at Stephen Smith, Stephen Smith is by no means a bad fighter. What he was was a fighter who hadn't been in enough tough fights. Callum Smith has been in no tough fights. Whatever you want to say about Rebras, he's not a tough <laughs> fighter at Fielding. all. No, none of these guys are tough. What he needed was someone who was going to give him hell. And he needed to go to hell and back. So in his heart, he knows when he fights someone like DeGale, who has a notoriously good chin... When he fights someone like DeGale, who's got a chin, some stamina, he can then say, do you know what? I've been to hell and back What already. they need is for December 10th to scrap the Luke Bladledge fight and pay Arthur Abraham whatever it takes to get Arthur Abraham to come over and take him through the rounds. Build it as the Paul Smith revenge. You know, Paul Smith's been in there twice for Arthur Abraham. Abraham's not a huge risk to him. Like it's high, As long as Callum Smith can work through two and a half minutes of every round, Arthur Abraham shouldn't beat him. But Arthur Abraham can punch hard. If he catches Smith, he's going to be in trouble. He can give him problems that he's never seen before without being that huge a risk as long as Callum Smith's as good as I think he is. Instead, we'll end up with Blackledge and he'll take him apart in five rounds. Okay, one for you, Terry. Uh, Damien Taylor at DMET7 asks, who has the biggest say over a boxer's career? Something we've touched on before. Trainer, manager, promoter, the boxer himself. Um... Does the dynamic change throughout the boxer's career? So so I did a piece on this. If you go to my website, it's up there. And it looks at Anthony Joshua and it goes, what's it all about? Now, I've given Eddie Hearn a hard time. And what I did is I went back and I listened to the stuff Eddie Hearn says about AJ. And if you listen to what Eddie Hearn says and you read between the lines, what Eddie Hearn tells us is, mate, I'm trying to make these big fights happen, but I'm facing resistance. And depending on how you view that resistance, is it from the opponents? No, because if you pay people enough money, they'll come and take a kicking from Joshua. There's no issue with that. People will do it for money, you know, a couple of rounds, it's worth it. So then you have to look and go, 
who doesn't want Joshua to be tested? And then I started to break down the, the Anthony Joshua value chain. So if you look at AJ, there's the boxing and the commercial side. The commercial side is basically run by Wasserman Entertainment. So, sorry, Wasserman Media Group. And their UK presence, basically they bought the SFX group who used to manage footballers. So they have, they, they, they have guys in their books like The Beast, um, Akin Fenwa. They've got George Groves on their books. Um, they've got footballers like Steven Gerrard on their books. So basically, so this is the Wasserman model, right? Their, their key metric is what's the value of the contracts we manage? So with Anthony Joshua, what you're trying to do is get the biggest number of contracts under management. You know, you want him to be advertising Breitling, Hublot. That's where you want him to go. Luke and, is a Jaguar. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, working up the levels. So so you've got the commercial side. And that's Wasserman, that's Charlie Sims, his manager, Charlie Sims, who's connected to Tony and Peter Sims, who train Anthony Joshua. No, but they train him as <laughs> they part, <don't>. they train <laughs> him as, as part of the team. So, so you've part got of the Rob McCracken yeah. team. So, you, so you've got them and you've got Rob McCracken on the other side. And then in the middle of all of this, you've got Eddie Hearn, who has his own commercial interests. So what Hearn will do is Hearn will go, right, Barry Francis, here's who I think Joshua could fight in a financially prudent way. Barry Francis will cross off all the guys he doesn't want to see, who he doesn't think are profitable. Eddie takes whatever's left of that list to Rob McCracken and the team. And they eliminate everyone who they think he can't beat. And then Charlie Sims will come in and go, well... Look, if he loses to this guy, that's all the money could put. That fight can't happen. So you've got all of these guys interfering in the process. And you've got poor AJ probably saying to the world, I'll fight anyone. And Eddie Hearn going, I want AJ to fight this guy so he can fight that guy. But there are other people who aren't connected to the the fight itself saying that doesn't suit the long-term interest. Because AJ's the first proper cash cow in the digital age in terms of boxing. So this is a guy who will be all about spreadsheets, metrics, Instagram engagement, Twitter engagement. We're going to drive value off of that. And what the last thing these guys need is for him to look weak or even to lose because there's a lot of money projected for Joshua. I think they want, they're looking at career earnings of $100 million for AJ and he's nowhere near that at the moment. So if he were to lose, dangerous. I'll give you a, um, a sort of lower level example. Um, so each fighter will have a promoter, a manager, a trainer, and then themselves. Um, and so give you an example, trainer, old school trainer, Terry Stewart, right? He, he will work his fighters so hard. I know managers and promoters that go to him with challenging fights for his fighters. He has never turned one down. Like to the best of my knowledge, he will take any fight. He's not bothered. Like, basically, his view is, look, if my fighter is as good as I think they are and I don't work with bad fighters, then they should win that fight. And, like, he won't get involved in that side of it other than to say, yeah, my boy will take him. So Terry's been in the corner for James DeGale in the past. He works with Jake Ball. He's, um, you know, he's worked with a lot. He's working with young fighters now. So you've got that side of it. Then I know of other coaches. I won't give names now. <laughs> I gave Terry in praise, but... Um, I know of many other coaches who turn fighters down, like turn down fights. Actually, I'll give you a good example. I'll name a name. Um, Lucian Reed recently gone to Adam Booth from Peter uh, Sims, I think it was that he was training with. Um, he was due to fight um, Josh Kennedy for the, uh, I think it was the English uh, Bantamweight title. 
So he leaves Sims, goes to Adam Booth. Uh, this fight's all gone through the board. It's been mandated. It's been signed off. The purse bids have been done, won uh, by Goodwin. Adam Booth uh, takes over Lucian Reed and says, no, you're not taking that fight. It's too hard for you at this stage. Okay, I can understand that you've only just joined Adam Booth. Adam Booth maybe wants to give his uh, particular direction. But there aren't that many bantamweights around. Like, there's not a plethora of bantamweights that you can pick out for Lucian Reed to go and fight next. Like, that was a good fight. Um, but, you know, Adam Booth has turned that down on behalf of his fighter now, despite going through all the, the mandation and the purse bids, etc. Uh, Why change your trainer that late in, in uh, many reasons, fight? Many reasons. That happens often, does it? It does, but if you actually study the greats, they rarely ever change trainers. Yep. <laughs> yep. You know? or, 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 name, name anyone you respect. How long has Roach been with Pacquiao? Over a decade. Mayweather, we all know that one. Andre Ward, we all know that one. Even Golovkin now. What is Golovkin's trainer called? I've just had a mind blank, sorry. Uh, Abel Sanchez. Uh, yeah, Big Bear Man. Yeah, Abel Sanchez, sorry. So what you have, look, Hopkins and Nazim Richardson. Um, Shane Moses, Shane Moses Senior, um, Marquez, Nacho, Canelo, forget his trainer, but he's had the same guy. What happens is when you have that longevity, you have someone who really knows you and they're tailoring that training to who you really are. You start jumping ship and you have to relearn all the time. You never get that, that depth of experience. So I'm very much, you find a trainer you like from day one and you've got to trust him forever. Yeah, so you've got all that going on. Then in the background, you've got the promoter and the manager. The manager's job is to essentially guide you uh, through the path of least resistance, if they can, um, to the most success. So, you know, their job is to try and get you the the easiest fights for the best titles. Uh, in the meantime, the promoter's job is to sell whatever they're handed. Um, now, they may not like it, and they may want to try and push back on it. But ultimately, if the manager, the fighter, the trainer came to a promoter and said, this is a fight that we want, the promoters, you know, either got to decide, yes, we'll try and put that on, we'll try and win the purse bids, or we'll make an offer, or however it's going to work. Or they say, no, I'm not putting it on. Like, that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's a yes or no decision. If they don't feel that fight is worthwhile, there are many examples of promoters dropping fighters um, because those fighters won't take... I know, like... You don't have to look that hard into the current uh, kind of low-level boxers to see lads that are like 15 and 0 that have only ever fought Bulgarians. Uh, and they're demanding that they ought to get like a title shot, an English title shot, being eliminators, etc. Like, all you've got to do is look at those lads, those uh, records, and I'm telling you now, those are the ones where the fighters are turning down the fights. Um, because they don't, you know, they risk being tested. They're living this dream whereby they're a professional boxer. They're selling that dream to their friends, to their family on social media. They're probably still going to work nine to five as well. Um, and they're going to do that. They're going to rinse the game for as long as they can, fighting these fucking Latvian taxi drivers and things because they don't want to take that risk. They don't want to step it up. And then they're the ones that will be demanding they get the big fights. Like, that's where the problem sits. Um, just we were talking about Joshua, so we'll go with this question then. Um, at Daniel Saint, he asks when. I think actually we should start with Will at, at all, but he asks when will Eddie put Joshua in with Malik Scott, and <laughs> and how old really is Ortiz? The bloke looks ancient. So 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 so, so let me address that. I, I actually think 
and I think I said this in a previous podcast, Hearn wishes he hadn't given Scott away to Ortiz and instead of giving him someone like Molina. I think Malik Scott would have been perfect for Anthony Joshua because Malik Scott essentially is a sparring partner who knows how to get out the way of trouble. And what that would have done is said to AJ, what, what, what are you going to do when you get frustrated? What will you do? In the same way Brazil did, like where Brazil was still there after six rounds and AJ was getting a little bit frustrated and his corner had to tell him, now nah, stick to what you're doing. I think Scott would have stretched him out maybe a bit longer. He would have got stopped eventually, but that would have been good. But looking at Ortiz, Ortiz is anything from 18 to 180. Um, I think the only way we'll find out is if the Brexit UKIP lot get their way and we start dental checking uh, people as they come in. So I don't know what route Ortiz is taking into the country. Uh, I don't know if he's coming by, you know, boat over a uh, a wall under a tunnel or whatever. I don't know how early he's got him in. Um, but, you know, if we can get him dental checked, it's a bit like a tree, isn't it? We'll have to uh, cut him and see how many rings he's got. <laughs> but, look, but, but what we can establish is matrimony, an absolute mess. Because if you look at 2017, Hayes out of the picture, too dangerous. Ortiz is out of the picture. No one's going to buy that He's fight not now. out of the picture, though. If you can sell Molina as an opponent for now, you can sell Ortiz as an opponent. Like The biggest mistake they've made was putting him on in that Monaco card, yeah. by the sounds of it. But yeah. they, they can still... This is Sky. They can sell the sand to the Arabs. They can spin that 180... And still make him out to be the most dangerous, legitimate opponent. For Eddie Hearn, he must have been absolutely overjoyed seeing, you know, by the sound of it, because I haven't seen it myself, how bad Ortiz was. Um, because there's still that potential to sell him. And some of that risk seems to have potentially gone. Yeah, so they'll put him in with, I'm guessing, someone like a Dave Allen. And Ortiz will go to town. And then we'll go, the beast is here. He's back. Yeah, and then, you know, but the idea of using Ortiz as a battering ram is out the window now. He He's not a bodyguard for anybody. Um, you know, 2017, I think AJ will have another flaccid year. Back to what I said earlier about what are, what are his business interests. His business interests are just to get suckers to pay for pay-per-views <laughs> for as long as they can do it without having to fight anyone. And, and that's So we're do. relying on mandated fights for any serious challenge, are we? But he, he has no mandatory now. We're hoping Klitschko comes off. That's what it yeah. comes down to. Because AJ has no mandatory. As things stand, he has no mandatory. Because well, what, Parker's what? gone... But once Parker goes the WBO route and fights for the title, the IBF pull him out. Well, now so now they're, they're going to have. Well, so then they don't have one at all. Oh. No. So no stage next year where there'll be where there'll be a mandate. Not man- till the end of the year. <laughs> so we've got to hope that the Klitschko fight comes off because if not, they're going to get away with what they've been getting away with so far. Yeah, and they'll they'll get Joshua to twenty and zero. Yeah, they'll go. Look, he's twenty and zero. He stopped all twenty of his opponents. Yeah, he's the best heavyweight in the world. Ever. Well, yeah. Well, meanwhile, Ever. meanwhile, the best heavyweights are there going, yeah, but we've had to fight real fighters. We've had to do it the hard way. Apart from Deontay Wilder. Uh, you know, he, he, he's... At least he's got Stiverne on his record. Yeah, he's got, yeah. He, he's minced a few guys. Yeah. As reported yesterday from Senor Tasty. Come on, Mick. As reported best yesterday. Best name on Twitter. Will Hearn take boxing to Dubai? As plenty of promoters have tried and failed with this. Well, he's saying to Monaco, so why not a step further? Um, because you can't get absolutely smashed out your skull and walk around Dubai acting the fool. <laughs> no Josh Warrington fan yeah. will be going to Dubai. Yeah, you, 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 you can't. Like, I know, I know they've tried to get Amir Khan to box out there, but you need someone to bankroll it because the expat community there 
is active, it's lively, but it's relatively small. So you'd have to hope they all came and bought. The, the only big event you really get in Dubai, if we're being honest, is the Dubai Sevens, which is... Or the Grand Prix? Abu Dhabi. Is that Abu Dhabi? Yeah. Sorry. So Dubai has a Rugby Sevens, which is basically three nights of utter carnage. Yeah, but, you, but that's all done in hotels. So you'd have to find somewhere that is a hotel where you could serve alcohol. A Josh Warrington fan can find that in a desert. <laughs> Start digging through the sand. <laughs> find a mysterious city of beer. Yeah. Um, it just... It's interesting timing, isn't it? I mean, you know, the Monaco card, I know it's been planned for a while. Um, talking about going out to Dubai and launching a card over there. You have to know Eddie Hearn was aware of the BT Sport Frank Warren conversations well in advance of when it got announced this week. Um, not to say that Hearn's running away from the British scene, but you've got to spread your wings a little bit. When there's a big challenge and a big risk coming in your only source of income, then what do you do? Like He can try and strengthen it over here, but he also can go overseas um you know he's talked before about doing america he was talking about not that long ago um i say to me it's not a coincidence that you're seeing the first overseas card plus him talking about going further overseas in the same time that the first legitimate threat in a very long time to his british dominance uh comes along hubris <laughs> the, the defeat of many a man um, thank you for all the questions today. Last question from at Boxing Luton. JP he, Smith. He asks... My boy. Uh, random, although we've actually just touched on it, but predictions for Joshua Vlad were it to go ahead. Eddie Hearn's pocket comes out winning. <laughs> like, that is my prediction. I, I think that Vlad would... I think Vlad would win at this point in time. So I was watching... I was watching a bit of Klitschko and I think what we forget with Klitschko is... He's quite mobile for a man his size. And not only is he mobile, he's great at stifling you. So as much as Joshua is this big power puncher, you know, you can stifle him. In fact, Joshua struggles with anything that isn't a jab or a straight right hand. And Klitschko will know that. And all Klitschko will do is just step to the side and go, well, I'm just going to move here. Has, has Klitschko faced anyone similar to Joshua in the past? Uh, well, we don't know what Joshua's about, yeah. do we? Really? Like, he, until Joshua char- gets tested. Back? Um, I mean, if you had to, at the moment, put on a, a scale of 0 to 100, the explosive power of Tyson Fury against Anthony Joshua, you're putting Anthony Joshua way above Fury for explosive power and ability to knock people out quickly, based on what we've seen. If you're putting boxing brains in there, Tyson Fury is 100, Anthony Joshua is 10 because all he's got is that jab backhand, jab backhand. And that's what he's been knocking people out with. It's an impressive jab backhand. Um, and it's been breaking through the guard of Brazil. It's been breaking through the guard of Charles Martin. Would that be enough to take out Vladimir Klitschko? To me, no. Like, no chance at all. No, but, and also, no one has really gone to Joshua with a sustained body attack. So, like a guy like Jarrell Miller, um, as much as he's untested, is a guy who goes to the body a lot. And Joshua seems susceptible to the body. I almost think Joshua's waist is too narrow. And the problem with that is you have a far smaller volume absorbing really powerful shots. Those ribs are pretty near the surface. 
Yeah, and if you look at really, really good boxers, all the greats have quite thick waists and thick midsections. Even if they've got a six-pack, it's pretty solid because you need that to absorb those shots. So a bit of flab in, no, in lamest no, no, terms. No, 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 no. Wide hips and solid because you need to be able to generate the force to twist and throw those shots, but you also need to be able to take those shots. So you mean it's about bone structure? Yes, but you know you can naturally thicken your. I mean, your waist naturally widen as you get bigger. I don't know if AJ wants to hold a narrow waist, but he looks like he wears a size thirty-two or thirty-four jeans. Okay. Um, either of you want to uh, add anything else to this? Yeah, no. I just wanted to give a quick shout out. Um, last night at York Hall had a quick catch up with Nick Blackwell. Um, Nick Blackwell's corner in his brother Dan Blackwell. Uh, Dan Blackwell, one of the toughest men in boxing, without a doubt. 60 losses on his record, 7 wins. Out of those 60 losses, 1 has come by way of stoppage. Like That family have a different DNA to many, many, many other families. Like We've seen what Nick can take. Uh, do you want to say, like, Nick was looking in great shape. Um, still, he, you know, to look at him, if you walk past him in the street, you're not thinking that's a man who was in a coma for a week. You're not thinking that's a man who was on life support, a man who nearly lost his life entirely to the sport. He's there in his brother's corner, and like Dan Blackwell is the archetypal journeyman. He goes out and he takes his uh, his beating, but he's also, as I say, a tough, tough man. Uh, fighting Max Lovell last night, um, and Nick's in there. He's he's uh, cornering for him. He's getting into the ring in between rounds, and he's just having a bit of a, a laugh and a joke with his brother Dan, like in between rounds. Just saying, you know, go out and do your thing again. Like, just and this was after the main event. This was the last fight on the card. Four fifths of York Hall have emptied out by now, and you've got Nick Blackwell in there doing what he loves. Like, I had a quick catch up with Nick. What he would love to be doing is being in that corner himself still. Um, you know, he said it himself that what he wants, you know, isn't a replacement for him. But um, from what I understand, I think he's bought the old amateur gym in Trowbridge, where he's from. Uh, I, I may or may not be 100% correct on this, but I think he's had an involvement in, in getting his hands involved with the Trowbridge amateur gym. Um, and he wants to start, you know, doing more work out of there. He's, as I say, working with Danny's got his license. Um, I just think it's great. Like, don't get me wrong, I know Nick would rather be in the ring himself. He misses it wholeheartedly. Uh, and I'm sure he'd do anything to be able to get back in there himself. And it was just to see him looking so good, so happy around his brother, to still have a place in the sport, still have a home, um, you know, being able to be that, that coach, that person in the corner that gets in. And it's different as well because he's in there with his brother. There's a love there. It's not just a random fighter that he's got. It's his brother. Like, I know we talk about bravery and, Terry's not really a fan of the the idea that any fighter's brave when they just because they step through the ropes and all that. I think it's incredibly brave though just to see Nick like walking in there with his brother after all that he's been through and after all his family have been through. Like a, it's brave for Dan to go in there uh, after seeing his brother in that that state. Um, but for Nick to be in there, like I know I'm saying it's brave. He's probably thinking like it's just it's what he wants to be doing on a Saturday night. What he actually wants to be doing is in there fighting himself, but he can't do that. But I just it's it's brilliant that he's got a home in the sport still, and that home is to be able to help other fighters. You know, Nick was a lad at 17 years old who tore through the unlicensed scene, was knocking out grown men from the age of 17. Um, turned pro, took big challenges early on. So uh, took the Martin Murray fight, took big big fights. You know, ultimately 
maybe that had some effect. I don't know, but you know the issues that he had after the Eubank fight ended his career so early. But it's just it was beautiful to see a man being able to at least have an involvement in the sport that many, if it wasn't for the the health and safety standards around a British ring. Let me remind you, the show started a Goodwin promotion at York Hall an hour and a half late yesterday. Uh, maybe an hour to an hour and a half because the anaesthetist was late. They wouldn't start the. You can't start an event without them um, because that's the board rules. As a little reminder, Nick Blackwell was there as the last fight of the night. That's why you have an anaesthetist in there. So if you're complaining that it's an hour late starting, stop, think. And it was just a very stark reminder at the very end of the night, gone midnight when this fight ends. That's why you have an anaesthetist there. That's why you don't mind waiting an hour. And, you know, if it wasn't for that anaesthetist being there that night at Wembley Arena, Nick Blackwell probably wouldn't have been in the corner of his brother last night. So, like, huge shout out to everyone involved in it. And, like, it was just, it was a real touching thing for me. Good stuff, yeah. It's good to know that he is doing well. <clears throat> and, and when you say about him laughing and joking, that's sort of just uh, it's a, it's a nice image to have in your mind after what he went through. I'm not going to do argue the argument anymore. I think I've run... I've, You've run out? I've, well, I've, I, to some extent, I've run the world. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, look, I could, I could think of them, but I just want to put it... I just, wanna put, I just want to put it out there. If the audience want it, then they need to send something in. That, that's the, my only way to test if it's a, if it's a valuable and, and desired thing on the pod. So for next week, I need two arguing arguables to give to these guys. Or, or fine, I'll drop it. It's not, it's not, I'm not special. Wait, but you don't even check Twitter. Mm. How are you going to know? We'll just lie to you. So it never happened. I outsource it. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Um, so I guess all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening. And we will see you next week. Take care. Take care. I'm gonna get it up, 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 I'm gonna get it up,